Welcome to the Voices of the River podcast, presented by Blood of the West. Hello, and welcome back to the Voices of the River podcast, presented by Blood of the West. Once again, I am J.R. Robinson. I am the director of Blood of the West. And uh, in a little bit, we'll be talking to Sinjin Eberly, uh, who's the communication director for American Rivers. Uh, before we get to that, though, I want to sort of dive into a couple things that I'm noticing in and around the watershed uh, this past couple weeks that are sort of framing some of the the ways I'm I'm approaching the documentary uh, in the coming months and some questions that I have uh, that I'll be raising on my next uh, production uh, adventure out in uh, April. Here are some things we're looking at in the watershed this week. Number one, Lake Powell and Lake Mead. So the first thing that I'm looking at is the report that was just released yesterday by the Bureau of Reclamation. Uh, A lot of it's just numbers that I won't dive too far into uh, in the podcast because nobody wants to just listen to me talking about numbers all day. Um, But it's a really interesting read. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um for everybody to take a look at. Uh, But it's a really interesting um, look at their expected levels uh, for both Lake Powell and Lake Mead uh, by the end of the year. Um, The Upper Basin just did a uh, drought resiliency um, plan that basically is going to limit the amount of outflow of Lake Powell and try to maintain the levels of Lake Powell around 3,525 feet. For reference, 3,490 is the point at which Glen Canyon Dam no longer produces power. Uh, So they're trying to keep it above that. Um, By limiting the outflows out of Glen Canyon Dam, they are affecting both the Grand Canyon and Lake Mead. Uh, So Lake Mead's, um, they're expecting could potentially uh on the low end of their uh scenario uh could potentially drop below power pool which is 1050. now i think they've retrofitted um hoover dam to work a little bit below that um but we're really teetering on that edge of uh available power supply coming out of either of those reservoirs based on the amount of water that's coming in so it'll be a really interesting thing to, to look about. Um, I'm currently like looking at opportunities to connect with the Bureau of Reclamation this year uh, when I head out in April to actually be on Lake Powell for a little while. Uh, more info on that in the coming weeks. Um, but I'm, I'm really hoping to dive into some of those numbers with the Bureau of Reclamation because uh, stuff that I don't fully understand, but I'm hoping with a little explanation we can sort of get a sense of, of what we're really going to be anticipating in the Southwest, uh, both in the coming years uh, and then down the line, um, even beyond this 12, 24 months that we have coming. Number two, climate change in the Southwest. So the second thing I'm looking at right now is a recent article that was published in a journal called Nature Climate Change. I'll post a link to the article in the show notes uh, that shows the current aridification event that we've been seeing over the past 20 plus years is really the 
largest such event that we've seen in the American West since about the year 800. So we're talking about like 1200 years worth of drought cycles uh, that we are right now eclipsing in terms of the scale and severity of the of the current event. Uh, what this really shows, A, is that human-caused climate change in this sort of Anthropocene era uh, is really having a dramatic effect on uh, the weather and the, the climate of the Southwest. And really, in terms of the documentary, the way I'm trying to frame this idea is that uh, if you look at these periods of, of drought in the past, in the 1500s, in the 1200s, uh, back into the 800s, they all sort of link themselves with depopulation events in the watershed. Um, most notably, the depopulation event of the ancestral Puebloan people in the Four Corners was directly tied to a period of aridification. Uh, there was a really significant period of aridification um, through the 12th and 13th centuries. Um, and right now we're at a point that's even more severe than what was experienced by those people back then. So it's kind of alarming, uh, kind of a, for me, it's more of a call to action uh, that we really need to sort of look at this and look at the way we're approaching water consumption, looking at the way we're handling climate and the environment in the Southwest um, to make sure that it's still livable down the line. Um, for future generations. So really interesting article and uh, I'm kind of digging through it now, but uh, you know, it's, it's definitely something to think about going forward. Number three, the Gila River. Now the third thing that I'm looking at is happening down in New Mexico in the Gila River wilderness. Uh, it's a plan being put forth by the U.S. Department of Agriculture and the National Forest Service to perform a lethal removal of some feral cattle that are roaming and grazing in the national forest there. Uh, these are unbranded cattle. They are not directly linked to any ownership or ranching op operation uh, in the region. Uh, and they're really actually creating a, a significant environmental impact uh, by roaming uh, freely throughout the forest. Um, there's a kind of a two-pronged uh, resistance to this plan by the USDA. Uh, on one side, you have a ranching interests in the New Mexico area. Uh, the New Mexico Cattle Growers Association uh, is suing the federal government uh, to suspend this action uh, to not eliminate cows, uh, partly for fear of, of losing some of their own cattle in the process. Uh, but also the precedent it sets for removal of, of grazing rights on public lands. The other side of the argument is coming from my environmentalists who are concerned that by just eliminating these cattle, leaving their carcasses out in the forest for predators to uh, scavenge, uh, you're creating a potential dangerous situation where livestock would be considered then a uh, source of prey 
for these animals and particularly the endangered Mexican gray wolf, uh, which has its territory throughout that region. Um, the conflicts between uh, ranchers and environmental groups and the, uh, the, the idea of public grazing on public lands is uh, an age-old discussion. Uh, as long as we've had public lands, there's been this argument. Um, and it really comes down to this idea of, of cattle grazing being a very damaging environmental impact uh, and how to sort of limit that environmental impact um, from especially areas like the Gila Wilderness, which are so delicate and need to be protected. Number four, the Sea of Cortez. Uh, the last thing I'm looking at this week uh, before we get to the interview is a plan that was proposed by the governor of Arizona to invest up to a billion dollars in researching an option of desalinating the Sea of Cortez water, pumping that into Arizona, working with the Republic of Mexico to pull water in from the sea uh, to supplement and potentially replace water that Arizona will be losing uh, as the Colorado River faces shortage declarations uh, down the line. Um, it's another in a series of potentially bad decisions that are made along the watershed to accommodate the growth and um, management of water in Arizona. Um, rather than changing our habits in the way we deal with water in that state, uh, again, the governor is now looking at alternative ways to potentially impact a very delicate marine environment in the Sea of Cortez, which is already very much impacted uh, by pollution, overfishing, and also uh, the lack of freshwater inflow coming in from the delta, uh, where the Colorado River stops short of reaching the sea. So uh, we're sort of compounding one environmental problem in terms of the lack of water and the diminishing water in the Colorado watershed uh, by doing another significant impact on water down in the Sea of Cortez uh, that could have, again, significant environmental impacts and is a significant financial investment as well that may or may not be a feasible option in the first place. So something worth thinking about, the Sea of Cortez is something that I'm looking to highlight towards the end of the series. Um, as I talk about the Delta, I almost also want to look at the issues facing the sea and how they correspond to the river, because ultimately it is one watershed and sea and headwaters and everything in between are all linked up. And now, the interview. Okay, so our interview today is with Sinjin Eberly. He's the communications director uh, for American Rivers, uh, which is a nonprofit organization that focuses on conservation and restoration of waterways throughout America. Sinjin's also the executive producer for the content that American Rivers puts out, uh, both podcasts and films that they have put out over the years uh, of various lengths um, that really highlight specific issues that are happening along the watershed. 
Sinjin's work uh, with American Rivers is really interesting. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to him is because he does have such a perspective on the entire watershed um, through his work with American Rivers. Um, so I really wanted to connect with him. Uh, we met up in Durango, Colorado, uh, where he lives and uh, talked along the banks of the Animus River for uh, quite a while, had a really nice conversation. Uh, it was a little cold, uh, so I really appreciate his willingness to come out and talk to me. Um, hopefully you guys enjoy the interview. Um, hopefully you, you listen to the whole thing because there's some really, really fascinating stuff that he talks about and some really interesting perspectives that both he and American Rivers uh, are taking to approach the very complex dynamics that are in play along the Colorado River watershed. Uh, my questions have been re-recorded uh, after the fact, uh, so there's a little bit of a difference in audio quality, uh, but all of Sinjin's answers uh, were recorded on location by the Animus River uh, in Durango, Colorado in October of 2021. So hopefully you enjoy. Hi, Sinjin. I'd like to start off with just a brief introduction about who you are and sort of how you got started with American Rivers. I'm Sinjin Eberly. I'm the communications director in the Southwest region with American Rivers. And I also run all of our film and photography and video assets uh, nationwide. Um, I'm located here in lovely Durango, Colorado, and uh, which is in the center of the Colorado River Basin. It's a perfect place to be working across the basin uh, from from this awesome location. I went to Arizona State University for volleyball and uh, finished up my college career at Ball State University in Indiana with a degree in environmental science. Um, shortly after that, I started my corporate career in Albuquerque. I worked for Sandia National Laboratories. I worked for Lloyd's of London Insurance for a while doing uh, environmental litigation work. And over time, and then I, in, in 2000, I moved back to Denver to work for US West, which is Quest, which is now CenturyLink telecommunications company. And over that time, I gained a lot of corporate experience, but um, always had the pull of environmental issues and environmental science from both my degree and my family was very engaged in many of the fights across the Southwest in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And so I've always had this kind of landscape scale ethic about the Southwest, a comfort with these places. And so <clears throat> from 2000 to 2010, I was involved with Colorado Trout Unlimited and I was president of the state council for three years. And as I rolled off of that board, um, I had gotten to know some other people in the river and water community in Colorado. And they offered, they offered me a contract to do part-time work on the side uh, and eventually we were able to turn it into a full-time position. And I was in a place financially and, and in a place kind of in my career where I wanted to come back to doing, you know, being involved in environmental protection and being involved with rivers. Um, I strongly believe that rivers are the, are the center of all landscapes, whether you like to, to hunt turkeys or shoot elk or watch birds or just read a book by a river, rivers, rivers are the center of all of that. And, and no ecosystem can be truly healthy without uh, wild free flowing rivers. And so 
um, I channeled that work into American Rivers uh, in 2013 and have been cranking in the Colorado Basin ever since. And then in about 2014, American Rivers received a corporate grant to do creative storytelling across the country. And we didn't really know, there wasn't any real requirements around um, what that would mean. Uh, and so I had some friends in the outdoor industry who were doing some film work. And I said, why don't we try to make a cool film? We had commissioned Pete McBride previously to do a film called I Am Red about the Colorado River. And it's kind of this like first person the Colorado River is speaking to the audience um, film, and it was remarkably successful. And so we decided, why don't we try to build out more of our film and photography uh, practice? And so we did, and um, I was part of the team that created a film called The Important Places, which is, some people say, one of the best conservation shorts that's ever been made because it, it puts people in a connection to place rather than hammering you about, um, you know, such and such issue or such and such threat or, you know, the sky is falling. If we don't save this place, it's really about a personal connection. And so I learned through the experience and then through the 20 something films that I've made since then, that when you can talk to people in their heart, we can, when you can meet your audience where they are, instead of trying to hammer them with information, uh, you really have a much better chance at, at, if not capturing their interest, then making them feel something that they then will act on later on. And so in most of our film work, that's what I'm trying to do is connect the viewer to the place in a way that they feel emotionally connected to it, not just, oh, I know I should do something about this and I'm being told I should care. I actually do. So that's our ethic in the whole film program. So then how did you make the transition into film work and uh, making movies for American Rivers? The learning experience around film has been both uh, a very heavy lift and extremely exciting and fulfilling at the same time. I have, in essence, no uh, formal film background or instruction. Um, I did, a. I think the most, the most formal instruction I had was in 2015, I did a two week tour with CNN across the Colorado River Basin, working with Bill Weir and a show called The Wonder List. And I was just acting as a guide. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't there to be a cinematographer. And, um, but that whole team, including you know, one of the best uh, directors of photography in the world, Philip Bloom, all were carrying around these little Sony cameras. They were setting up their shots and I just kind of sat and watched and observed how they were doing this and how they were crafting this story and how they were putting it all together from a technology standpoint. And I'm a little bit of a tech nerd, so I kind of dug all that, but watching, then, watching that entire process come together over a couple of weeks, and then seeing the final product and seeing how they evolved what we did in the field into this hour long program on CNN. And it was remarkably exciting. And so that gave me the confidence, you know, by the time that trip was, um, was winding down, they were handing me a camera and say, hey, go over there and get that shot or set up and do this time lapse. And I shot a bunch of time lapses as, 
I kind of turned into time-lapse boy because I could stand there and basically hold a tripod and create this thing. And so um, I got comfortable with the Sony cameras. And so shortly after that trip, I decided, you know, if we can do this ourselves, film is expensive. And when you're paying filmmakers and cinematographers to do this work, um, you know, film can get quite expensive. It's $25,000, dollars $50,000 to create uh, a 10 to 15 minute short film. The ROI on that has to be pretty impressive to be able to spend that kind of money. And so I realized if I can shoot it myself, if I can learn how to edit, and if I can get people to polish the edit at the end. So my process kind of is on, on smaller films, I go out and shoot it myself, I try to put together the edit myself and get at least the bones of the story kind of laid out. And then I can ship that to an editor and spend $5,000 or $7,000 and have a finished product. I can make five of those for $35,000. Suddenly my ROI is much better and I have a lot more content. I can customize it because I know exactly what I want, the questions I need to answer, whatever. Um, and so that's really been the thing. And so now, um, I would say I'm shooting and editing probably half of the films we're doing. The ones that are really important or is such a compelling, beautiful story that I don't want to screw it up, then I hire that out. And I go, you know, I have a couple films going right now that are big, important productions, and they're way bigger than what I could do with my day job too, uh, to be able to, to actually do it well. And so I'm, I'm learning this balance between putting out an advocacy short that we can bolt together and get out the door versus the character-driven, really compelling stuff that, we, um, that, I, that I want to invest in. I want to pay professionals to do that. So there's a balance there. So what would you say is the mission statement for American Rivers and what kind of work does the organization focus on? American Rivers is a national river conservation organization we protect wild rivers, we restore damaged rivers, and we, and we conserve clean water for people and nature. That's the mission statement. But in practice, the way I think about American Rivers is, and, and this is no ding on any other organization, but we're one of the few river conservation organizations that's simply in it for the river. If you think about, and again, this is not disparaging anybody else, but the other, many other groups have a, have an activity or a sport behind them, right? Trout Unlimited is about fly fishing and river conservation. American Whitewater is, is kayaking and river conservation. And so, um, you know, uh, backcountry hunters and anglers have a water side of things. They shoot big game. All of that is fine. We are in it only for the river. We're in it for, you know, the riparian areas and landscapes that depend on these places. And so, I, I mean, and I'm a fly fisher. I was a kayaker. I'm a avid whitewater rafter. I'm more of a mountain biker than anything. So, you know, I, but I appreciate that when I'm on a mountain bike trail, I'm, you know, most likely within a couple miles of a river. And so I really was attracted to the idea that we're doing it for the river and that that's, that's the core ethic of what American Rivers is all about. Um, American Rivers, most notably is about removing dams. Uh, and it was formed almost 50 years ago by a bunch of guys in Denver in a hotel room throwing $20 bills on a hotel bed and saying, we're gonna stop 
this dam building movement that was going on in the 1960s. And so it started from a place of taking damaged rivers and restoring them back to their, their, their wild nature. Um, and I think that's really important too. Most of our dam removal work is either in the eastern half of the country, you know, Pennsylvania and North Carolina, all those low head dams, thousands and thousands. There's like, you know, what did Dam Nation say? There's 75,000 dams across the country. We've got a lot of work to do. And the vast majority of those, of course, are little five, five foot, 10 foot, 15 foot high dams that are totally outdated, extraordinarily dangerous to anybody around them. And now towns are recognizing that when they remove those dams and restore their rivers, they're revitalizing their communities. They're creating jobs and they're bringing people into those towns um, for people to recreate and enjoy that for, for generations have been basically off limits. Um, so that's really exciting. Out here in the West, we have much larger dams. You know, they're billions of dollars of investment. They are assets that are set and that society has really built and expanded upon dams, uh, around dams like Glen Canyon and Lake Mead and the Snake River dams and the Klamath dams. I mean, those are big, big dams. And, and have major impacts on river systems across the West. But we can see through places like the Elwha and Condit, when you take down a big dam like that, the ecosystem responds instantly. Um, I did a little project in central Colorado. It wasn't a dam removal, but, but I did a little project in central Colorado where we were restoring almost two miles of stream and literally as the backhoe was sitting in the river and one of the backhoe drivers was sitting on his backhoe for lunch and the backhoe was off and he's just sitting in the middle of the river having a sandwich and he was watching fish swim up through the tracks of the traco that was sitting in the river nature you know dr malcolm said in in uh in jurassic park nature finds a way and it really will when you give it a chance so obviously dam removal in the West is a really polarizing issue. Um, you have proponents of dam removal who argue that a free flowing stream is best for the ecology, best for the landscape and ultimately best for the people in the area. And then you have people who are proponents of damming and retention of water who argue that that storage is necessary for life to actually exist in these regions. How does American rivers sort of mitigate some of the conflict between uh, those two arguments and then balance its goals of river restoration with the needs of population centers to grow and thrive throughout the watershed. There are certainly a lot of people in the world who believe every dam should be removed no matter what. That any dam is an evil dam and it needs to come down. While we recognize that rivers function better when they're not dammed and and you know, I, I would say we're pretty comfortable being able to say every river deserves a chance to be free because it, the, the ecosystems work better when they're not dammed. I mean, it's just, that's science, that's the way it is. But we also recognize that society has developed around a lot of these places. And especially in, uh, especially with regards to infrastructure like Glen Canyon or infrastructure like, you know, the Lower Snake, those are dams that society has molded itself around. And so 
the time, in essence, the time's just not right. Now, the day may come and climate change is showing us that this is a, this is a pretty serious time um, and rivers are impaired and dams are making it, in some ways, dams are making it worse. Um, but a lot of our dam removal work is based on dams where their the time has come to take them down. So whether it's a FERC relicensing issue where in order for that dam to relicense under the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission um, rules, the federal rules around large dams, um, sometimes those dams, in order to install new fish passage or install new um, you know, regulatory controls that are required under the law, it doesn't make sense to keep it in place. And for instance, that's one of the situations on the Klamath is those dams are up for relicensing. It would be so expensive to add fish passage and to add other um, technological improvements that are required under the law that the companies that own them are like, why don't we just take them out? Let's restore this river and let's make that um, the future of the Klamath. And of course, the indigenous people around that area would love to have their river back. It's such an enormous impact to salmon that um, you know all of those factors combined provide the opportunity to take that dam down. Another example, uh, Stanford University owns a dam just outside of Palo Alto. The dam is crumbling. It's a it's stopping a um, it's stopping a salmon run. That's one of the one of the area's most critical salmon runs, and we're advocating to take that dam down. But Stanford University actually owns it, and so we're pushing. We're being activists. We're we're making the case, but ultimately, you know, it's theirs, and nothing we can do about it. Um, we just got to keep at it. Um, some dams are not up for relicensing but are stopping salmon. I'm thinking about the Englebright Dam um, in Central California. Uh, that dam is not up for relicensing. It's not falling apart, but it's absolutely impairing a salmon run. And it must, something must change because that entire ecosystem is damaged. Where our position now is while we don't like trap and haul, putting all the fish in a semi truck and driving them around the dam, it's expensive, it's, it's barely functional, but that species is hanging on by a thread. Is it reality that that dam is coming down anytime soon? Probably not. But if we can keep that, if we can keep that species alive until that dam can come down, then we take advantage of that. So we feel like it's a, it's a moderate, pragmatic approach. Let's take down the ones that we can, absolutely. I mean, we just blew up the bloaty dam in Maryland last year. Uh, um, there's been other, the Patapsco, um, the dam on the Patapsco was taken out. There was a little dam in Columbia, South Carolina. I was working on a film project a couple of years ago and they took me to this little dam and it was literally just like sheet iron stuck in the river and it had no purpose. It was super dangerous because it's sharp steel crossing this entire river. People wanted to be able to boat and tube and play in it. No way, it was super dangerous. I took that out last year. And because the opportunity was there to work with the city of Columbia, South Carolina, make this thing happen. And now the community has a new place to play. That's awesome. From a communication standpoint, how do you approach these conversations? And what do you find are the best angles that 
you take in order to work with both community or economic needs and also with environmental needs? I think the best way to approach any of these issues is to listen to what the local people want. If the local communities are deciding that, you know, they would like to have a different opportunity centered around their river, how do we help them get there? Um, I'm thinking about the community of Del Norte, Colorado, which is just on the other side of Wolf Creek Pass. Um, for years, the Rio Grande has run through town. It's been kind of neglected. Uh, you know, it's a very agricultural community. It's like most of McDonald's potatoes are grown in the San Luis Valley. Almost all the barley that Coors uses in their beer is grown in the San Luis Valley. And so it's this, it's a, it's this really large, very intense agricultural area but the headwaters of the Rio Grande runs right through it. And so how can we create, how can we help create connections to the Rio Grande in Del Norte? Well, the community started the Rio Grande Headwaters Restoration Project. They started replacing some of the head gates to add fish passage and boat passage because there is recreation on that stretch of the river. And what the community realized was they wanted a, they wanted a play park they wanted to redevelop the corridor through the town of Del Norte along the Rio Grande and the play wave and the fish structures um, and, the, and the boat structures could be the centerpiece of this whole project. We weren't very involved in that project in initially, but now we're involved in taking what they've built and helping them build bigger community connections to center around their river every day. Um, and that's super rewarding, right? I mean, the community wanted it. They asked us for help. We listened to what they were asking about, what they were, what they were trying to get to and use some of our expertise, some of our communication skills, some of our storytelling to be able to say, this is a really good thing. And now we're doing a project across all of the San Luis Valley to bring all, all different aspects of the community together by, through water. Um, and it's pretty awesome. With the film work that you're doing for American Rivers, where do you find you're targeting your message? Do you aim for a broader audience or do you take more of a localized approach? In terms of audience, I have a theory. And my theory is that if you have 100 people in a room, five people are already gonna be interested in the topic that you're talking about. So 5% of the audience is already in your topic. Conservationists and environmentalists and really anybody likes to think about, well, we've got to get the message out to the general public. I don't believe there is such a thing as a general public. I think we, we operate in, and this isn't not strict silos, but we operate in basic silos and it's how people view themselves. What is the image of someone who's engaging in your issue or not? And so, if I assume that I already have 5% of my audience in my pocket, my goal is to get to the next 5%, not try to go for the 95%. And if we build it and we, and we meet that next 5% where they are, here's an example. 5% of the people in this town own whitewater rafts or kayaks. They're already in, they care about the river, they care about conservation, they tour around the West, they're familiar with these landscapes. There's, and, and, they, and they belong to an organization, maybe it's American Rivers or American Whitewater or San Juan Citizens Alliance or a local organization around the river, they're engaged. There's that whole next level of people that kayak or fish or raft who 
participate in this place, they engage in the in the in the physical part of 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 the river itself, but they aren't active. They're not activist and they're not engaged in the conversation or the policy or the planning or whatever. That's who I want. I want the people who already understand and love the places that we interact with. I just need to get them to go to, to care one step farther and take action on behalf of these places. So that's how I think about audience. With film, I try to position all of our films with regards to our film program, I have a couple tiers of how I think about different films and where they're gonna where they're gonna be seen. Our high quality cinematic creative storytelling films are targeted at the film festival crowd. Wild and Scenic Film Festival, Five Point Film Festival, Mountain Film at Telluride, um, Banff. We've had films in all of these places, and that gives the film a uh, a sense of credibility that it's a good, solid, creative product. The beauty of Wild and Scenic is that they have a 200 city tour. And so if I get into the kickoff festival in January, I have a really good shot of getting the film on tour and suddenly tens of thousands of eyeballs are seeing my film through the festival circuit. And then of course we're online. We have a big social media platform. We have a podcast series. So, you know, I think about film as one component of our complete communications platform that I like to call American Rivers Media. So film, podcast, written, LTEs and, and op-eds, you know, what are all of the different tools we can use in the, in the storytelling toolbox to be able to touch each one of those different audiences where they are, instead of assuming, assuming that they're all just gonna come to my YouTube channel and give me a like because that's not reality. Do you feel like there's a different message that you have to relay based on where you're at within the watershed? Uh, for example, do you have to talk about headwaters communities different from desert communities and talk about the river in different ways based on the audience that you're trying to connect with? From a, from a communication standpoint, we always have to think about our audience and, um, and be thoughtful about how different communities across the basin have different characters, have different ethics, have different political views, um, and have different purposes for how they interact with the river. Um, you know, in the headwaters near Kremling or up in Wyoming, it's very agricultural based. It's big ranches. They're, they're maybe producing thousands of acres of hay or they're running cattle, you know, thousands of head of cattle across across the landscape, whether it's private land or public lands. Um, and so, you know, being mindful and being thoughtful about how, how um, farmers and ranchers think about heritage and legacy and think about, you know, that they may have been multi-generational. I mean, we know, we know ranchers up in, up in the Kremlin, upper Colorado area who are fifth and sixth generation ranchers at 11,000 feet. It's a hard life and it's difficult to make a living. Um, and they also, in some ways, are the shepherds of the river too. You know, there's a lot of drama around the fact that about in Colorado, about 85% of the water is used for agriculture. But 
we think about it as 85% of the water in, in Colorado is managed by agriculture. And, you know, in a, in a typical farmer's field or rancher's field, the river's coming down, they have a head gate, a bunch of water, you know, they take 100 gallons out of the river to flow into their fields, 90 gallons of that water goes back in. And so on average, a drop of Colorado River water from the headwaters to the Mexican border is used over 20 times as it's making its journey down the basin. It comes out, goes through a farmer's field, goes back into the river. It goes out, you know, the, the Shoshone power plant pulls a lot of water because of its senior water rights all the way down the river. Um, so it, a drop of water goes out, goes through the power plant, goes back into the river, city of Glenwood Springs, et cetera, all the way down the basin. As you move down the basin, there's agricultural producers who are managing that water to grow food, to grow crops. The, then you get into more of the communities like Glenwood Springs and Grand Junction and Moab that are recreation-oriented communities. Sure, they have agriculture around them, but there's colleges and hospitals and, you know, so that's a different kind of message. That's a different kind of approach of how you wanna to talk to people in communities like that. Then as you move down the basin, you're in the desert. Um, and especially when you start thinking about tribal communities, you know, the Hopi are traditionally dryland farmers. So the rains and the monsoons are really important. The Navajo have, in Farmington, there's a whole agricultural sector of the Navajo nation um, near Farmington and Shiprock that while most of that is groundwater, it's still, they're, they're interacting with the San Juan and the San Juan is very important to them. You move through the Grand Canyon and you have indigenous people with deep, deep connections to the Grand Canyon. How do we talk about them, about the protection of that place and work with them to protect that place in the way that they want it um, to, be, to be left? Turn the corner at Lake Mead now you're back in agricultural land. You go through the Colorado River Indian tribes, the Cocopa tribes, and then you end up in Yuma, which is the original diversion, the um, Laguna Dam. You get to, I couldn't remember the name of the dam. Then you get down to Yuma and you're in one of the largest agricultural areas in the country that supplies the majority of the lettuce in Connecticut in December through this big valley in Southwestern Arizona the first major diversion dam on the Colorado River, the Laguna Dam, is just north of Yuma, Arizona. And so you go, you, the, as you travel down the river, you're going from ag communities to desert to canyon, back to agriculture. You have tribes along the entire length of the river. And every one of those communities, all of those people have an identity with the river that if you're gonna do any communications around conservation or preservation, you have to be sensitive to how they want to think about it and how they want to advocate for their place. And so that's how we approach all of our stuff. It's, it's rarely one message that goes out to the entire country. It's, it's tailored to who are we trying to inspire? Who are we trying to activate on behalf of their rivers? And, and that's, I spend more time thinking about audiences and researching what are effective messages um, with people than anything else I do. So how does American Rivers look at the Headwaters region of the Colorado and particularly look at things like Transbasin diversions and their impact on overall riparian systems? 
the situation in Colorado is unique because uh, the city of Denver is a four million person city on the front range that is growing and growing rapidly. Um, and by definition requires a lot of water. And the way that system has been set up over the last hundred years is that there are transbasin diversions that take water out of the upper Colorado or out of the Arkansas, if you're in Colorado Springs, uh, and pipe that water from one side of the divide to the other. And while casually that might not sound like such a problem, um, in reality, the problem with that is, especially in the headwaters area, um, when you take water out of the upper Colorado and you put it in a pipe or you divert it across the divide, either to Fort Collins or to, or to Denver, that water never returns to what's called the basin of origin. So it starts on the western slope. And once you take it over to the eastern slope, it never has an opportunity to return. So you're draining the river. The upper Colorado um, is something like 60% of the flows of its original flows because of trans mountain diversions that go from the west slope to the east slope. There's a casual, there's a casual line that 80% of the people in Colorado live on the eastern slope, 80% of the water falls on the western slope. And so that, that difference in supply and demand creates a real problem for the river, especially when you have a fast growing front range of Colorado. So that's not to villainize anyone, that's the situation that we're in. And so in order to have healthy rivers on the Western slope, in order to have a vibrant agricultural industry on the Western slope, in order to have vibrant Western slope communities that wanna grow and thrive like Grand Junction and Glenwood Springs, you have to find a way to reduce what is in essence the only consumptive use of water, taking it out of the headwaters on the western slope and moving it east, never to return, in order to safeguard western slope water. And then because the, base, the entire basin is connected, um, we also have to think about how do we manage as much water as possible, keep it in the river and keep it flowing, because one of the unique situations well, let me back that up. Um, so the Colorado River watershed is in essence broken into two parts, the upper basin and the lower basin. And the dividing line is Lee's Ferry um, just at the top of Grand Canyon National Park. So just below Glen Canyon Dam. Um, the upper basin are the four upper basin states of Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, and Utah. The lower basin states Arizona, Nevada, and California, and then we tack on Mexico as well, because it's important too. Um, and so if you think about how the basin is, is put together, Lake Powell is the storage for the upper basin states. And if, but, but if you think about that, the upper basin states don't have any way to reacquire their water that goes down into Lake Powell. So they, the upper basin states have to plan and predict how much water they're gonna to send to Lake Powell on an annual basis. Lake Mead is at the top of the lower basin. And so all the lower basin states have to do is watch the levels in Lake Mead and under the compact figure out how much water they're gonna be able to pull in any particular year. So there's two completely different mindsets about water management 
whether you're in the upper basin or lower basin, because of that difference in the location of their main storage units. Of course, in the upper basin, we have lots of other little reservoirs too. We have Flaming Gorge and Fontenelle and Rudai and um, Navajo, uh, Blue Mesa. So there's a lot of smaller reservoirs that are, that are holding water that will all eventually feed into Powell. But ultimately, the decision points are made around Powell and around Lake Mead. And so the management across the basin depends on those two lakes being managed together. That's how the basin, unfortunately, fortunately or fortunately, that's how the basin is set up. And society has developed around, in the last hundred years, has developed around how those two lakes are managed. 40 million people, a $1.4 trillion economy, over 276,000 square miles is all built on one cohesive basin um, that we all rely on. If I have nothing else in this thing, in this film, 40 million people, $1.4 trillion economy, 276,000 square miles. One of the main reasons I ask about the headwaters of the Colorado in particular is this striking image that you get when you're up there of this diversion, this original diversion on the river uh, that's pulling water into the Grand Ditch and you have this broad stream flowing out towards Fort Collins. And then the Colorado River itself is just this small trickling stream through a meadow that you can sort of barely determine where it starts and where it's going because uh, it's so lost amongst the grass. It's just this really interesting perspective on the amount of water that we pull out of the river before it really has a chance to get started. Yeah, and when you, and just just as an aside, I mean, when I was a Trout Unlimited, um, the Fraser River is a really, really important headwater tributary because in essence, the Colorado is drained nearly dry before the Fraser comes in. And so if you start impairing the Fraser, that, and, there's, and there are diversions on the Fraser also. And so, you know, the upper Colorado and, um, um, when you start talking about, you know, the Colorado Big Thompson project and it's pulling water to take it to the northern front range cities, the Fraser is really important to try to keep the ecosystem of that upper Colorado stretch alive. Um, and so you start impairing the Fraser. Now you've got real problems in the headwaters of the upper Colorado. One of the coolest things that's happening is that some of the major water districts, American Rivers, Trout Unlimited, and a couple other environmental groups have come together to form an agreement to actually bypass Windy, Windy Gap Reservoir. Um, the Northern Water Conservancy District is putting a few million dollars into actually building a bypass to restore the upper Colorado ecosystem below Windy Gap. Colorado Division of Wildlife for years has been stocking um, salmon flies, stocking insects into the river just to try to keep the fishery alive. I mean, that. You think about that, we're used to like fish stocking. I mean, they stock the animus from the fish hatchery here. But when you start talking about having to stock insects into the river just to keep the fish alive, you know there's a problem. And so, you know, it's a real success story that we're able to help manage the Fraser, help manage the upper Colorado and, be, and, and change places like Windy Gap that it's not an opportunity to take that dam out, but we can certainly do a mitigation to help the river function better around it. And that's a really important thing. So how much of our job as communicators would you say involves looking at 
the history of the river and reframing it. I guess sort of looking back and trying to learn from the decisions or mistakes that may have been made in the past and trying to distill that for an audience to maybe reevaluate the way we approach the river, particularly as it relates to the indigenous relationship to the river and the alternative way Euro-American settlers have operated in the West for the past 200 years. It's, it's absolutely critical that we remember the past before white settlers came to the West. <clears throat> Puebloan people, Navajo people, the Ute in this part of the country. I mean, these people have been around here for thousands and thousands of years. They've interacted with the land. They thrived from the land. And they also, and they also recognized when uh, climate was changing or drought was happening and they moved and they responded and they were flexible to it. Sometimes it's hardship for sure, but you know, the, the, the reality is there's so much wisdom that we can learn from how indigenous cultures have interacted with these landscapes for millennia. And we come, we white guys come in and start engineering our way through things and, and forcing the, um, forcing the water to work for us versus working with it. And I think that there's so much opportunity to be able to listen and, and feel and think how, in a way that an indigenous person would, or that indigenous storytelling has, and, and mostly through you know verbal storytelling, right? Uh, linguistics, all related to people's interactions with the rivers and the landscape. And right now, of course, there's a very popular movement around diversity, equity, inclusion, and justice, and access, and all of that is absolutely time, timely and necessary. But I think even past just saying, we need to think about diversity, we need to think about equity, we also need to feel and listen to what kind of relationship indigenous people have with their landscapes and with their water. Another way that we can listen to indigenous people and learn from them is how through their stories, they in essence would measure changes in the climate and changes in the world. You know, the Hopi talk about when their corn sprouts, when their corn flowers, when it becomes ripe, and there's dates around that. There's, there's in essence a scientific measurement, a metric based on when the monsoons come and how the corn is doing and when is it ready for harvest. And I think our cultures measure things based on numbers and, and quantities and all of these different really hard metrics without feeling the relationship between what you're trying to interact with and the world and, and the people that are engaged in it. And I think we can, we can do a lot by listening and feeling and just you know, being more thoughtful rather than just trying to ram a solution into a, ram a, ram a square hole solution with a square peg, um, because all of this has been interacting for millions and millions of years and we need to be responsible to it. You know, they were here first, they have, they have rights and responsibilities to this land and that it's in some ways been, well, not in some ways, in many ways, um, the way that they and their 
spirit, the things that they care about the most have been absolutely mistreated by us. So does American Rivers do any collaborative work on reintroducing wildlife or restoring native hydrologies into the watershed? Um, I'm thinking primarily in terms of beavers in those headwaters areas. So while American Rivers isn't necessarily a wildlife conservation organization, we certainly recognize that there are there are species that are extraordinarily beneficial to the health of rivers and vice versa, right? Riparian areas are, are the centerpieces of life, especially in the arid west. Um, and one of the most important ways that we can help bring a river back and bring ecosystems back, of course, is through beavers or beaver analogs. We don't have a whole lot of experience yet in doing a lot of beaver analogs, but across Northern Colorado, especially, um, we're very interested in starting to do a lot more work around beaver reintroductions. Are there ecosystems, are there wetlands areas, wet meadows? Um, they may be some of the best areas for resilience and uh, in the face of a, of a warming climate to be able to have um, healthy ecosystems and I hate the term ecosystem services, but um, you know there are definitely ways that by bringing natural habitats back to their higher biodiversity state, we also are helping rivers sustain and thrive in, a, in an era of a warming climate. So I, you know we're, we're not reintroducing herds of elk anywhere but absolutely, if we can help create situations where beavers are going to move in and restore the river themselves, restore tributaries themselves, we're, we're working on it. Um, that is a newer program area for us, but Faye Hartman in Denver, who works with Matt, um, that's her jam. So, and I obviously stumbled because it's not the area that I'm in all that much. I'm focused more that way, but, um, you know, there's definitely, you know, Nature Conservancy, has a whole, you know, beaver program. I mean, there's there's a lot going on around that natural resilience stuff, and I think it's it's fascinating. And it, you know, it's also in some ways low expense, low engineering solutions that are under our noses every day. I mean, they cruise around and build dams and restore ecosystems. It's cool. It just seems like a really interesting alternative, uh, particularly in terms of those smaller dams uh, that you see on creeks and streams. Uh, to instead have beavers or beaver dam analogs fulfilling that role instead. Natural distributed storage is kind of a new buzz in river conservation. It's like, how do, we, how, do, how do we encourage higher elevation, naturally distributed storage, naturally occurring distributed storage? And it's beaver dams, beaver dam analogs, wet meadows, um, What's the fancy, uh, what's the fancy wetland type um, that's super rare, not karst? Anyway, can't remember. But there's a, there's a type of wet meadow that's really, really rare, but they're highly, highly effective at holding water. So what do you feel is the role of recreation in helping to preserve rivers or landscapes and protect natural hydrologies? And what do you feel are some of the downsides to increased impact uh, that you find when recreation becomes a prominent force in some of these areas? There's no doubt that outdoor recreation is a really important part of how people interact with these rivers. And, and sometimes, and especially since the coronavirus pandemic, 
um, many, many people rushed to the outdoors. It was a way to get outside. It was a safer place to be than hanging out in the cities. Um, and we really saw a crush of public lands and, and rivers uh, with people and a lot of first timers, to be honest, um, discovering that these are places that are fun. They're amazing. They're spiritual healing and you're outside. And so you're able to do an activity without being exposed to the pandemic. Obviously, um, most people recreate responsibly. Most people, even if they don't have a lot of experience, are at least respectful that these places are here and they're important and they have to be taken care of. Of course, there's a small contingent of people who have been jerks about it and have degraded some of these places. You know, the, some of the archaeological sites in Utah that have been defaced. And it seems like the rate of that kind of activity happened a lot over the last year, which is really unfortunate. But, you know, any way that we can get people to recognize the importance and the connection um, of these places, and, and then it isn't a big leap as people get more comfortable in, in places like this, river conservation or mountain biking or public lands or hunting and fishing, I mean, whatever it is, that once you start to appreciate that, you wanna take that next step to protect it. And I think once people start realizing that a river or our open spaces are really part of the fabric of these communities, they start to recognize what they have to lose if they don't take care of them. We see a lot of tourists here in Durango from Oklahoma and Texas and Arizona. And sometimes, you know, you, you look at the license plate and you wonder and you, and you see the bumper stickers and you're like, why do you come to a very, very liberal town, a very liberal part of the country that cares about public lands, cares about our rivers and, you know, our community is all about the outdoors and our connection to this place. We have mountains. We have big mountains up in the Wimanuchi. We have a river running through town. We're part of the Colorado Basin. Lots of public lands all around. And it almost seems like, you know, people come here and want to try to change the place to be more like home. So then why are you coming here in the first place? But on the flip side of that, if they come here and they recognize, wow, you know, this is a really wonderful place to be. I wish home could be more like this. Then, you know, that exchange of ideas and that exchange of values hopefully is making an impact either way. Because of the pandemic, Durango was crushed by tourism this year. I've never seen downtown. And, you know, many of my friends are like, wow, we have never seen the volume of traffic on Main Street as we did in June, July, August of this year. And, and people complain about it in the traffic and it's busy and, you know, in the restaurant industry, some people are rude and, you know, it's been really hard with staffing. But on the flip side of that, if people are coming to places like this and enjoying them, and if five or 10% of those people go home and say, I want to go back to Durango because it's so amazing and I want to help protect it, then that's progress, right? So... I'm all about, you know, immersing people in these landscapes, immersing them in places like this. Mild to Wild runs dozens of raft trips a day during the summer. And I bet 75% of those people had never been on a river. And they have so much fun coming through this rapid and having that experience that they'll never forget it.
So right now we're on the banks of the Animas River, uh, which is a tributary of the San Juan, which in turn flows into the Colorado. What is the importance of the San Juan to the larger Colorado system, and how does its place as one of the most stressed rivers in the watershed indicate larger stresses that are going on throughout the entire system? I mean, the importance of the San Juan, obviously, and, and here we are in the banks of the Animas where four years ago or five years ago, you know, the Gold King mine accident happened and it blew, you know, three million gallons of bright yellow water down our river. And while Durango reacted, you know, very emotionally and people were standing on the footbridge across the river and crying and it was a community, like a community mourning for a couple months. And, and it should have been. I mean, it, it really woke a lot of people up around here that this river is really important to the community. Um, but what it really did, well, what it really did for Durango was recognize and empower people to say, hey, Silverton, and hey, this whole, this whole stretch of river, we need to take care of this. And we need to step up and make some changes because these contaminants are coming out of those mines up there every day. The, the talking point is, while Gold King Mine was like 3 million gallons of contaminated water, the Animus is that section of Cement Creek has been flowing about 100 million gallons a year for decades. And nobody knows about it because the river looks clear. It's such a small amount all the time. Gold King really woke this place up. But the most important thing I think that Gold King did was it made the connection from Silverton up in the headwaters through Durango into the San Juan and the native communities that depend on the San Juan and, and making that tie throughout the entire Animus San Juan Basin, I think was really, really important to kind of give people that broader perspective of what happens up there impacts us here, impacts Aztec and Farmington and Navajo farmers um, all the way to Lake Powell. And it, it really made a lot of people think. Brad Udall is a climate scientist at Colorado State University, and he and Jonathan Overpeck have done a bunch of work around how the climate impacts of this hot drought, the drought that has been um, impacting the area since about 2000. Um, what, are the, what are the actual impacts to the Colorado River of that? One of, the, one of the key data points that those guys have come up with is that since 2000, there's approximately 19% less water in the Colorado River because of, because of the changes of climate, because of the increased temperatures. And for the Colorado River system, that's a really big number, right? A fifth of the river is just gone. Fifth of the water in the river is, is gone because of a warming climate. The San Juan, the number is 30%. So nearly a third of the San Juan River is being impacted, has less water in it. Um, because of climate. And I think they said the Yampa was like 9% less. So as you move north, less of that water, it's less hot, right? Less is just evaporating out. Um, but if the Colorado River is, is a river of so much importance, and it absolutely is, the San Juan River has more severe impacts and is probably impacting people with less available resources to mitigate that um, than, than the Colorado does. And so the San Juan is becoming increasingly important and a river of very much concern. And then I would also flip the scales on the Rio Grande. You know, th there's, 
there's a lot of people very concerned about Lake Powell and Lake Mead being less than 35% full right now. That's all very true. But let's not forget that Elephant Beat Reservoir is less than 5% full. So you have the Rio Grande running dry through Albuquerque, and then it makes its journey um, past Isleta Pueblo, through the, some of the fields, down into the hatch area. And the major reservoir in Southern New Mexico um, for water supply from the Rio Grande is less is is about five percent capacity. It's it's dire everywhere. <clears throat> These climate impacts all across the Southwest are showing up in different ways, but the way that's consistent is that rivers are running smaller, rivers are struggling more, and we have to take action in order to try to protect these places, or else they're going to be gone. And the societies that depend on them, whether they're their Anglo societies or big cities like Phoenix or indigenous communities like the Navajo and the Hopi and the Paiute all depend on these places and we've got to do this together. So you bring up the Rio Grande uh, and a lot of the stresses that that river is facing wind up having uh, cascade effects up on the San Juan in Colorado because of diversions that go from the San Juan into the Rio Grande system. Uh, to some degree, yeah. The Albuquerque, the Albuquerque stretch gets San Juan water, yes, San Juan La Plata. And there's three reservoirs down there. I mean, there's a whole basin reoperations thing going on on the Chama. Um, those three reservoirs that feed Albuquerque, we're, we're trying to work with Bureau of Reclamation. How could we retime some of those reservoirs, the releases out of those reservoirs, to help the Asequia communities in northwestern New Mexico, to help the fish and wildlife and recreation on the Chama? But also, you know, there's endangered fish in Albuquerque. And if the river's running dry, those fish are put in little pockets. Those pockets of water are heating up. It's, it's a really stressful situation all around on the Rio Grande. Following the river down, the San Juan then leads into the Colorado River at Lake Powell. Uh, this year, the reservoir has hit its low point. What do you think is the future of Lake Powell and the impact of shortages this year for the watershed? down the line. Some people are overblowing the Deadpool talking point. That's why I reacted that way. And I know some of my colleagues are even saying, the projections are we could reach Deadpool. Bureau of Reclamation projections are just that. But the other thing that those projections are is probabilities. And so when thinking about the Bureau of Reclamation's projections for future years, there's a wide band of probabilities of how those projections could, could manifest themselves in the lake. I don't wanna to get too argumentative about this, but I also think that it doesn't do us a lot of good to um, you know, throw around uh, sky is falling type terminology when what we need to be thinking about is what are things we can do today to help support the system? Whether you like Glen Canyon Dam and Lake Powell or not, the reality is this is the system that we're in and there's 40 million people that depend on this system functioning reasonably well. We need to do whatever we can to stabilize the system and the upper basin and the lower basin have equal responsibility to try to make this, make, make this situation work. Um, you know, 40 years ago, there was, and more, 40 years and beyond, there's always been arguing and fighting between the states about who gets what and who's allocated what under the compact. 
All of that is still really important. But the drought contingency plan efforts of 2019 to, for the seven basin states and Mexico to come together and go, we have a problem, we need to work together. How do we, how do we move this conversation forwards without going in to courtrooms and without firing up all the lawyers, I think is what we need to remember about the situation we're in now. There's absolutely the tendency right now that each state could start staking out its territory and picking sides and starting to defense up for how they're gonna protect their interests as Lake Powell and Lake Mead continue to fall. That's understandable, but at the same time, every state needs to, needs to remember that we're all in this together and that if we're gonna, if we're gonna sustain this system together, we have to work together to do it. And it means there's gonna be some give and take. It means there's gonna be, have to be some hard sacrifices. It means they're gonna have to put some money into the system and the federal government's gonna have to put some money into the system in order to have something like a basin fund that can fund especially agricultural product projects to be able to make the water go farther and to make sure we keep as much of that water in the river as we can while sustaining agricultural production across the entire basin. That's my statement on Lake Powell. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you ought to get somebody like Heather Patno, who's the, who's the person running the models and have her talk about, and this is all public stuff. I mean, she, she does this at public meetings all the time, but having someone like her explain the projections and explain the probabilities, I think would be really useful because, and, it, and it'll make people glaze over. It's really hard stuff. She sent me the formula yesterday for how do we calculate unregulated inflows into Powell. I was like, which gauge do you use for unregulated inflows? It's like four lines of a formula of where they get all of the inputs to define what is unregulated unreg inflows into Powell. It's fascinating. It's awesome. So with all this talk about the strain on Lake Powell and the strain on Lake Mead, what happens to the Grand Canyon uh, as these reservoirs start to decline uh, and potentially fail down the line? Um, with the strain on Lake Powell and the strain on Lake Mead, obviously one thing that we should talk about is how does that impact um, one of the world's most iconic landscapes, which is the Grand Canyon. Um, the flows in the Grand Canyon are managed, regulated, whatever, um, under the Glen Canyon Dam Adaptive Management Program and the in, in, a, in a dual piece of legislation called the Grand Canyon Protection Act from the 1980s. The Grand Canyon Protection Act basically directs the Secretary of Interior to take care of and restore and improve the ecosystem that is the Grand Canyon. Um, that includes native fish, that include, includes sediment and vegetation, that includes um, uh, invertebrate life, cultural resources, cultural heritage sites, things like that are all covered in the, in the Grand Canyon Protection Act. That is coupled with um, a program of adaptive management to manage the dam and manage the flows uh, such that um, there can still be hydropower production, but while also being respectful and uh, trying to maintain and sustain this ecosystem that has been irrevocably altered. There's no doubt about it. Um, the ecosystem of the Grand Canyon is very different than it was pre-1963 when Glen Canyon Dam started to fill. 
there's a lot of concern that as the lake levels are falling, that some of the science and some of the experiments that are going on within the Grand Canyon through either USGS and the Grand Canyon uh, Monitoring and Research Center or the National Park Service are being impacted because these low flows are creating such a um, concern to let any drop out of the bottom of Glen Canyon Dam. So this is something that's being worked through. Um, there's committees that are working on this and are very intentionally working on this. It isn't just big government bureaucracy being lame. I mean, there is a lot of, there's a lot of concern and a lot of efforts going on to figure out how do we strike the balance between sustaining and maintaining the ecosystem in the Grand Canyon, maintaining some hydropower production because the reality is Glen Canyon Dam is a very important hydropower production um, facility. And what a lot of people don't know is a lot of the revenues that come out of the sale of hydropower through Glen Canyon Dam actually fund a lot of the fish recovery programs in the upper basin as well. So like the endangered fish programs on the Yampa and on the upper green are funded by hydropower production profits coming out of Glen Canyon Dam. So the system is, is networked together in that way as well. Certainly as the concerns around the lake levels um, increases and as people start to realize just how integrated these two reservoirs are with each other, obviously the big, the big question is Grand Canyon. Fortunately, it has some protection under the uh, Grand Canyon Protection Act, but we have to do better because that landscape, while it is quote unquote protected, is still in jeopardy of degradation if we don't responsibly manage the reservoirs together. So below Lake Mead and Hoover Dam, we built this series of step pools and physically changed the flow of the river away from its natural wide meander. What is the effect on the river ecologically and what sort of recovery is possible given the amount of change that's happened in the lower Colorado system? After Lake Mead was constructed, um, Lake Havasu and Parker um, uh, and the the series of pools, if you will, that go from Powell to Mead to Havasu um, and on down to Yuma. And of course, that's where the, the biggest, the largest diversions on the river, the All-American Canal comes out to go to Los Angeles. The Imperial Canal comes out, is, is the, the largest diversion on the river that goes to the Imperial Valley and then on to San Diego from the Yuma area it certainly has created this even more manufactured plumbing system in the lower river than even what we experience in the upper basin. I mean, certainly there's a lot more diversions in the upper basin that are taking water over to the front range, but the big diversions where a lot of water comes out is the All-American Canal and um, the Imperial Canal. And so um, there's, there's been a ton of impact and a lot of damage done between Lake Mead and, um, and Yuma. What's inspiring though, is that there's a series of Native American tribes, the Colorado River Indian tribes, um, the Kokopa tribes and the Quichan tribe, um, all of which who have done major restoration work um, all along the stretch of the river that they border onto. Um, there's been crop switching, there's been direct restoration where they've taken out miles 
and tens of thousands of acres of invasive plants, invasive trees, and reintroduce cottonwoods, reintroduce um, forests that bring birds back to the area, tribal elders walking through their forests and just smelling the air and realizing that their, that their forest and their landscapes are, are home. That's how they, how they have described it. Um, the city of Yuma working in, in that part of the, the river um, restored miles of Colorado Riverfront all through the downtown of Yuma. And while they're still taking water out of the river for agricultural production, the bird life, the wildlife, and just the, the spiritual feel of the Colorado River in that part of the basin is, is really, really cool. It's really inspiring. And um, I mean, the fact that while we created all this degradation through all of our engineering feats, bringing back the river is, is even more inspiring just because it's healing those people, it's healing those landscapes, and it's better for all of us. It really is, it's really great. So east of the lower Colorado, you have this massive urban expansion in the Phoenix area. And much of the water that Phoenix requires is actually coming from the Central Arizona Project, which draws water out of the Colorado River and sends it into the Central Arizona Desert. How much of a role does Phoenix play in the decisions that are made about managing water resources in the Colorado? Another major diversion in the lower basin, of course, is the Central Arizona Project, which was built late 70s, 1980s, and it's a about a 335 mile canal that goes from Lake Havasu around Phoenix and then down to Tucson. Interesting thing about Phoenix, um, the most recent census revealed that Phoenix is the fastest growing city in America over the last 10 years. In the, in the, in the last 10 years, Phoenix is the fastest growing city in the country. It is now the fifth largest city in the country. And if you step back even from that a little bit, the three of the top 10 largest cities in the country, Phoenix, San Diego, and Los Angeles, all take their water out of the Colorado River. It's the only single river feeding multiple cities of the top 10. And so, you know, it, it just shows how much reliance on the Colorado River is really happening every day. Phoenix has been especially picked on because Traditionally, it's not been the most efficient city. It has a lot of golf courses. It has a lot of swimming pools. And you can even contrast that with its sister city, 90 miles south of Tucson, who in the 1980s had basically a public health crisis because of water quality. Um, they went from groundwater, switching over to the Central Arizona Project water, and the public treatment plants weren't able to handle the di difference in chemistry in the water. And so it was, it was basically a public health crisis in Tucson. They switched their ethic instead of trying to force an engineering solution to realize that their connection to groundwater had to get better. They had to have a better relationship with groundwater. And so they started taking a lot of their central Arizona project water, putting it on farm fields, putting it in infiltration ponds, and letting it soak down into the, into the aquifer where the ground would naturally purify this water. And then when the city needs it, they can take it out. And now Tucson has a multi-year buffer of groundwater that if they shut off the Central Arizona project altogether, which under tier three shortage could 
actually be sort of a possibility um, that Tucson would have some buffering effect. Now, before we pick on Phoenix too much, Phoenix has actually been um, doing a program with Tucson to take some of Phoenix's Central Arizona project water and put it into Tucson's aquifer. The geology is a little different, so it works better, but they have trading credits between the two cities. So Phoenix has kind of changed or, or elevated its relationship to water in the last 10 or 15 years also to try to mitigate some of the exposure that it has to a Central Arizona project reduction. Here we are in 2021, um, just a couple months ago, Bureau of Reclamation declared it what's called a tier one shortage in Lake Mead, which means Lake Mead has fallen and, and is projected to continue to fall under 1,075 feet of elevation. The impact of that is that some of Arizona's agricultural water will be shut off in January um, under this tier one shortage agreement. If Lake Mead falls below 1050, that'll be a tier two shortage. And so more agricultural water will be lost. Some municipal water. So now we're talking about Phoenix actually have to take a reduction under tier two shortage. And then under tier three shortage, um, almost all of the agricultural water through the Central Arizona project is gone. Major cutbacks to municipal water through the CAP. And then some of the tribal water also would be removed. So as Lake Mead falls and it hits these thresholds of 1,075 feet, 1,050 feet, 1,025 feet, the situation in Arizona is gonna get more and more challenging. And then under tier two and tier three also, Nevada takes some cuts, California begins to take some cuts. So everybody is gonna feel some pain and it, it just further amplifies the idea, we have to do something to reduce the use, reduce the consumption of water in the Colorado River, or else there's entire regions of the country that are really gonna be struggling um, with water supply. And what we don't want it to do, of course, is impact the people who have the most flexible, the, what we don't want it to do, of course, is impact the people who have the least amount of flexibility um, to have to make the largest sacrifices. So we have to find a way to mitigate this problem together and we have to do it equitably and we have to do it with intention. We can't just, we can't just wave a wand and work our way out of it. This is gonna take real effort. I was wondering if we could talk about the Gila River for a second and the issues facing that watershed. Well, the Gila River in Southwestern New Mexico is also a really critical river in the basin. Um, you know, it also is iconic in that it flows out of the nation's first wilderness area. Um, and what's unique about the, that's different from uh, the Colorado and the San Juan is that it's more of a winter flows, um, early spring flow river. It's, it's a little bit of snowpack and it's not much of a monsoonal river, but it, but it really is, is, the, is a winter flow river, which is, which is cool and different. Um, absolutely a bird paradise. I mean, there's lots of endangered species, there's endangered fish, but as the Gila rolls out of the Gila wilderness, um, and flows towards Arizona, um, it, it flows into this really large agricultural area near Stafford, Arizona, um, and really is, is absolutely dry in large sections before it gets to the Gila River Indian community, um, where it then flows you know, past Phoenix and then kind of dies in the desert. 
the Gila also is a river that is showing dramatic impacts from climate change. Um, the warmer climate drying up the Gila as it's tumbling out of the mountains. Um, it's a it's a it's a river of real concern uh, for sure. One of the things that American Rivers is doing, and along with um, a coalition of people in southwestern New Mexico, a number of different organizations. Um, and we have a proposal for a wild and scenic protection on almost 450 miles of the Gila and San Francisco River um, in southwestern New Mexico. And so, especially the community of Silver City, Grant County, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of involvement and a lot of hope that we can get this legislation passed to protect this river. And the cool thing about the wild and scenic proposal on the Gila is it involves agricultural communities. It restores and, and protects water rights um, for people's traditional uses of water, agricultural or indigenous water rights in the Gila. Um, it preserves public land protection. So hunting and fishing and logging, all or firewood gathering, logging um, are all protected under, under the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. Um, and so we hope that that is something that happens this year. We're literally waiting any week now for the legislation to be introduced into Congress. And um, it'll be a substantial protection for all of Southwestern New Mexico. And if you think about it, when you protect the headwaters of a river, the agricultural users downstream are basically getting certainty that their water is gonna be there. And so, you know, those, those uses will still be able to happen. We're just protecting it as it is for future uses and for future generations. And I don't know, I don't know how anyone could argue about, um, argue against doing something like that because it's, it's adding certainty to what everybody has been enjoying for decades um, and millennia moving forwards. So if we reach a scenario where there's a tier three shortage declaration with Phoenix, would that put increased strain on the Gila River? If the situation on Lake Mead continues to become more grim and we enter something like a tier two shortage, a tier three shortage, Phoenix has a little more flexibility. They've developed a little more diversity in their sources through the Salt River and the Verde. They also have some groundwater resources. The problem with Phoenix is they've, they have put a lot of water into their aquifer. And while it's not as good as Tucson, they still are recharging their aquifer in the greater Phoenix metro area. Um, but they don't have as many wells to pump it up as they have to put it in. And so spent all this time putting a bunch of water in the ground. Now they have to figure out a ways to get the water out of the ground. Um, and so that is a immediate challenge that Phoenix has. But I think, you know, if this situation, if the drought continues and climate continues to impact all of this, Phoenix is gonna to have to figure out, and Tucson and Flagstaff, I mean, all of these cities are gonna to have to continue to figure out what, what they can do to have better urban conservation, consume less water, and reuse and recycling our proven technologies. Denver, Denver doesn't talk about it much, but Denver's been recycling great volumes of water um, through their treatment plants for decades. San Diego has been doing, and Orange County have been doing reuse and recycling for decades. Um, there may be a place for some small scale desal 
The problem is with desalinization is it's really, really, really expensive. And it, the, the water that it returns, it's just not a lot. It's a really energy intensive thing. And so desal is kind of not, you know, they throw around these solutions like, oh, we should just take all that ocean water and turn it into fresh water. But it's so remarkably expensive and energy consumptive to do that. And when you think about using all this energy to purify water in an era where fossil fuel building, burning especially, is creating climate change, that equation doesn't fit, right? So why don't we use our intention and our knowledge and our technology to use less water in the first place, recycle what we can, harvest every drop, instead of using an inordinate amount of energy to try to purify a little bit of water. It just doesn't make sense. So how can we talk about growth, particularly in cities like St. George and Phoenix and Salt Lake City, and how that growth affects the water needs throughout the entire basin? I mean, obviously, when you step back and start to think about all of these issues surrounding the Colorado River, and the, as, a, as a baseline issue, you have to start thinking about growth. And I certainly don't have a solution for which, um, you know, which gates get closed and nobody else can come to the Southwest or Durango or Phoenix or Los Angeles. I mean, I, I don't have a solution because people are moving to these places for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, the, the economy and the, and the environment in Phoenix is attracting tens of thousands of people a year. Um, some of those Western suburbs like Goodyear and Buckeye and Phoenix, there's tech companies, there's just, there's a lot of growth. And so I don't, I don't have a solution. I don't have some great magic, uh, magic idea about how we slow the attractiveness of places like Durango or St. George or Moab or Flagstaff to curb that growth. And certainly somebody's got to get a hold of it. It has to be addressed for sure. But what we can do is instead of just blindly building houses as fast as you can without an assured water supply, and this is something Arizona has grappled with for a long time, um, maybe, maybe we need to get to the point of saying, you can't build subdivisions unless you have guaranteed supply. And guaranteed supply means that there may have to be input somewhere else because if the basin is gonna be this impaired for its overall water balance, there's gotta be a give and take in where that water comes from. Go back almost a hundred years, the Colorado Basin Compact, when it was signed in 1922, assumed that the Colorado River was really about a 17 and a half or 18 million acre foot river. So every year on average, 17 million acre feet of water would flow down the Colorado River. In reality, what we're dealing with now is maybe a 12 million acre foot river, maybe an 11 million acre foot river. We've been running, we've been running you know, about a 13 million acre foot river. And now you're seeing the two reservoirs that are the buffers for this entire system falling dramatically because we've suddenly come to the place of the river can't give any more water. There's just not any more water to go into those reservoirs that are 
that are buffering how much we're taking out on an everyday basis. And so growth, economic development, water supply, a hot drought, climate change, all of these things are culminating in this area of the country most notably. But let's not forget, I mean, there were drought warnings in Atlanta a few years ago. There's been drought in the Northeast that has impacted some of the wettest areas in the country. <clears throat> it was 120 degrees in Portland this year. It's crazy. And then people are moving to a place where our water supply is massively shrinking. So there's gotta be a conversation about if you're gonna come to Phoenix, if you're gonna come to Denver, if you're gonna come to St. George, maybe you won't be able to have the lifestyle that you had in Ohio or in Texas because it just can't sustain it anymore. It's just too much. Fuck, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I don't wanna see Durango grow anymore, but I know it's going to, but how do you stop people from coming to a place so awesome? So last question, how would you say we can define a voice for the river? How do we help the river speak for itself? And that's one of the things that I'm really thinking about that with this project is how do we establish a voice that represents what the river's needs actually are going forward? I suppose there's two ways that you could think about how could the river speak for itself? One way that may not be so pleasant for people is how it's speaking to us now. Is it saying, I'm in trouble, I'm shrinking, I have all this pressure and humanity is not respecting me. And so I'm gonna, I'm gonna punch it in the kidney a little bit and throw a little sand in the gears because you're taking advantage of the life that I bring to this entire region. So, so the negative would be the river is definitely barking back at us right now. The positive would be it also is giving us an opportunity to recognize and appreciate and cherish what it does for us. The Colorado River and all of its tributaries, this whole basin brings us life, it brings us food, it brings us joy, it brings recreation, it brings economy, it brings sustainability, it brings beauty, it brings art. I mean, it brings so much more than just um, two molecules of hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen cruising downhill. It's, it's more than just a physical thing. It's a spiritual connection. It is, it is a provider of life. And I think it's telling us that we have an opportunity to be more engaged in the stuff that we actually depend on as humans to live as well. If we want to survive and we want to sustain, especially in the Southwest, um, we have to listen to the river. We have to pay attention to what it's telling us. Climate change is a global problem. There's a story out this week that um, some satellite measured huge volumes of methane coming out of Russia that had never been seen before, that had never been measured before. And so while on an individual level, climate change may be really difficult to deal with, and you know we're behind the eight ball that governments are trying to grapple with this, industries are trying to grapple with this, but at, the, at, a, at a more personal level, there are things that we can do every day to interact with our rivers take the pressure off of our rivers and the landscapes and the environments that we live in 
that provide more resilience. If we're gonna have to endure a warmer world, we need to work harder and work together to create a situation where we actually will be able to sustain our way through this rather than just give up and live in a grow dome. I mean, Paolo Bacigalupi's book, The Water Knife, was a post-apocalyptic look at what happens, you know, 20 or 30 years down the road in Phoenix. I think while The Water Knife is kind of a sensational thing, the last couple of years have shown us that if we don't take care of this river and we don't think about how we're using water and how we're trying to add some resiliency to our landscapes, that may be our future and we better get on it. All right, and that's our interview for the week. And I wanted to thank Sinjin Emberley and American Rivers uh, for their collaboration on uh, and willingness to, to talk to me on this project. Um, it was a really nice conversation and very cold out there. So I'm, I'm glad that uh, Sinjin was able to sort of brave the temperatures and come on out and, uh, and meet with me. Uh, we'll be back in a couple weeks with more content. Uh, hopefully everybody enjoyed this. Uh, please subscribe if you did like it. And uh, we'll be putting out more content as we go. And hopefully some exciting news coming up in terms of our plans for our shoot coming up in April. So stay tuned and we will have more to come. As always, more information can be found on the project and uh, what we're doing either on social media at Blood of the West, on Twitter and Instagram, or at www.bloodofthewest.com. Uh, we do have a new episodes list up on the website, uh, which is pretty cool. So you can sort of browse through the general uh, themes and topics for each episode. So. Uh, feel free to take a look at that. Uh, sign up for our mailing list. There's going to be a big email coming out in the next couple of weeks um, with some updates and some ways that you can contribute and help uh, to make sure this project keeps going. So thank you again to Sinjin and we'll see you guys next time. Thanks. Bye.